Welcome to the Final Draft Summer Sessions Podcast. My name's Andrew Popel. All summer long, we are revisiting incredible Australian writing in the Australian Classics Book Club. If you are a regular listener, you know that the Final Draft Podcast is all about books, writing and literary culture that Final Draft broadcasts from the studios of 2SER in Sydney because we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing. And summertime, well, this is a time to discover or rediscover the classics that you know and love. The Australian Classics Book Club was a panel discussion that ran for several years between about 2016 up to 2020. It looked back at incredible Australian writing and it featured a panel of authors, publishers, thinkers and, well, me as well. (laughs) Today on the show, we are going to be looking at... Amy Whitting's Eye for Isabel. As always, though, I would like to acknowledge that 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people and that I record on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I make this acknowledgement to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and that treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Amy Whitting's Eye for Isabel is a tremendous book. It is somewhat coming of age, somewhat an exploration of Sydney and so much more. I'm really excited to be sharing it. So join me as we rediscover Amy Whitting's Eye for Isabel here in the Australian Classics Book Club. Thanks for joining me. It is time to discover or rediscover another Australian classic. It is the Australian Classics Book Club, our monthly search, discovery, adventure into Australian writing throughout the years. Now, I'm joined by my regular book club colleague, David Winter. He's a senior editor at Text Publishing, who are the publishers of the amazing Text Classics, where we are sourcing our book club. Welcome, David. Thanks, Andrew. And today we're also joined. We've got uh, we've got a triumvirate book club. I'm joined by Ashley Hay. She's the author of the internationally acclaimed uh, books such as The Body in the Clouds, The Railwayman's Wife, and Ashley has written the introduction to Amy Whitting's A Change in the Lighting. I've sort of given away what we're talking about, but first I'm going to welcome you, Ashley. Hi, Andrew. Now I gave away. You wrote the introduction to Amy Whitting's A Change in the Lighting. We're not talking about a change in the lighting. That is a text classic that's just arrived this March. We are talking about Amy Whitting's Eye for Isabel. And uh, this was my first reading of Eye for Isabel. I'm really excited to be, uh, to be chatting about it. Where does this sit for both of you? Had you read it previously? Have you read it for the book club? Ashley, did you? Um, I think, you know, I think I did read it when it came out, uh, which is back in 1989. But it was a very long time ago. I reread it just... Uh, in the last couple of days, and I think when I read it the first time, I would have been, uh, what, 18 years old or something, and certainly my reading of it this time, um, I found it an incredibly powerful book. Uh, it, it made me question whether I had read it before, which which makes me think um, perhaps not, but I, maybe what I can remember is the noise around it coming out. I can remember Amy Whitting as a presence um, in Australian literature and I can remember uh, both Eye for Isabel coming out and then uh, Isabel on the way to the corner shop. Certainly reading it now, um, reading the character of Isabel and thinking about what Amy Whitting has done as a writer, it was just one of the most rich and rewarding experiences. So I'm incredibly grateful 
to the book club for uh, for making me sit down with it again. And David, for you? Uh, first time I read it, Andrew, was uh, when we were considering it for the classics. I- I'd certainly heard about it. Uh, but uh, Charlotte Wood, who introduces the, the text classics edition, makes a very good point about Amy Whitting, which is that uh, she's often avoided, uh, I think, by people because her book titles uh, can sound a little floral or a, a little childish. And in fact, her writing is anything but, uh, although many children appear, including Isabel, in her novels uh, and stories. So uh, it was one of those books that I, I sort of felt I'd ought to have read. I, had, I was too young the first time around and... Uh, it is a really heady book to encounter and then to reread it uh, just recently. It, was, uh, it hit me again, although in different ways. And so that, that's I for Isabel. We're, we're about to, uh, to get into the book. It is the story of a young girl and we travel with her as she grows into adulthood. But let's, let's get to know Amy Whitting, the author, a little bit better. David, can you tell us a little bit about who Amy Whitting is? Sure. Well, she was born in uh, 1918 and she uh, was quite a a brilliant student and ended up at Sydney Uni uh, at a very fertile period there when there was James Macaulay and Douglas Stewart who went on to perpetrate the uh, Ern Malley hoax and they were the brilliant figures on campus and Amy Whitting was uh, perhaps slightly more retiring. Uh, She went into teaching first in rural New South Wales and then at North Sydney Girls High, which is quite a... eminent school and she was by all accounts a really sensational teacher of I think of English and and French. She didn't really uh, start writing seriously until the 1950s. By the 1960s she had two stories published in the New Yorker which I think might still be as many as any Australian writer has has had in, in that publication and there's then quite another lag until her first novel, The Visit, is published in 1977. So at that point, she's almost 60. Uh, this is where things get really strange. Like she, she finishes I for Isabel very quickly, uh, which is a, a superior novel to The Visit. The Visit is very good, but I for Isabel is, is a masterpiece. And, and she can't get the book published. Her agent, Margaret Connolly, uh, tells me that she uh, sent the manuscript to every publisher in the country. Uh, The responses were uh, pretty strange, sometimes pretty vicious, really, uh, to the novel, and we can probably get into that when we talk more about its themes. But that decade really stalled Amy Whitting's already late-starting career. When the book was published in 1989, it became a bestseller and uh, Ashley's already alluded to to the kind of feeling around the book and the, the splash that it made. And the, flood, um, the floodgates really opened for Amy Whitting at that point. She, in, in the next uh, decade of her life, so between 70 and 80-something uh, when she died, she produced four novels, many, many poems, uh, a lot of sh- very good short stories. Uh, so she's incredibly prolific in late life. I don't know of anyone else who had such an amazing burst. Uh, and now... She, well, until recently when we republished her, she seemed already to have slipped back in uh, in the literary consciousness to some extent. Uh, I don't think she's forgotten. Uh, I for Isabel in particular has many fans, but I think she's somewhat misunderstood and many of her novels and stories are set uh, in an earlier time than they were written and so that it can seem as though we're heading further back into the past. But I, I can't still can't quite fathom why a writer of, of this quality who uh, and, and of acclaim too and some reasonable sales at least for I for Isabel has 
uh, is, is not a more dominant figure now in uh, in Australian literature. She doesn't seem to be ranked with the writers who uh, she's definitely at least the equal of, you know, the Jessica Andersons and uh, Ruth Parks and so on. We are here to redress that. We are going to storm the literary barricades and restore Amy Whitting to the parapet. As we discuss Eye for Isabel, it's, it really is a wonderful tale. I, I confess that I, this is my first reading of it. And I was really struck, just, just in brief, we, we have the story of a young girl, Isabel, and we meet her with a very um, cold, uh, emotionally abusive mother, and we follow her as she grows into adulthood. And that's, that's probably both a very brief synopsis, but also covers what I for Isabel has. And it's really in the psychology of Isabel and how she goes about her world and discovering her world that we get the real content and enjoyment from the book. Does anyone have anything to add to that? Is that a fair, um, a fair analysis or a synopsis? I think it is. I mean, I think you've mentioned something really um, important, which is the sort of the dominance of her mother. Her mother is this um, just awful, awful woman. Um, I'm all for trying to see everybody's uh, side of the story, but my goodness, I, I would love to have known what caused Isabel's mother to <laughs> treat her the way she did. Um, and not only does she really uh, just confine and delineate and um, and hamper Isabel's life, uh, but but she sort of dominates our sense of the book as well. We were we were talking um, before we began this conversation of the way your sense of the book before you read it is that it is all about Isabel and her mother and that is certainly the starting point and is certainly, you know, as Isabel grows up, there is so much there that she has to work out. But the mother is this incredibly uh incredibly well made character she is just she is an extraordinary um piece of work literally <laughs> and sort of metaphorically and she's an amazing person to meet on the page particularly when you are meeting her through the eyes of her daughter Isabel who is 8 years old and and about to turn 9 uh i think one of the most amazing things for me about the book was just the incredible clarity and honesty with which Amy Whitting laid out both the child Isabel that we first meet at the beginning of the book but also her mother through her eyes and through the little glimpses that you get of her through other grown-ups, through, you know, the other people that Isabel Isabel intersects with. Um, she's she's a, an amazingly powerful force and um, I'm not sure when, when David mentioned before about the problem that Amy Whitting had getting this book published in Charlotte Wood's introduction to the text classic, uh, there's a quote from the very prominent Australian editor Beatrice Davis where she says something like, you know, it's too dark or nobody could possibly have a mother as dreadful as this. Um, and that's that's amazing to me that, that Amy Whitting's creation of this woman was so good, it it was sort of the thing that blocked the novel from having its own life, in a way. Mm. I think it's really interesting that the uh, how we approach the novel. I, I really, um, we've talked about how Isabel's mother can almost overshadow the text, but for me, she became this uh, antithesis against which Isabel was going to fight. So, in very early on in the book, Isabel became this heroic figure for me. And mm. particularly in her 
joy and love of books. And I, I thought, for me, if I, if I, as I was preparing to speak with you both, I thought that's what I really want to talk about because Isabel is this character that is like so many of us, I presume very much like both of you and so many people I know who just loves books and finds so much from them, including refuge from uh, a person like her mother. Yes, and I think one of the things that I found um, so wonderfully honest in I for Isabel is Amy Whitting's portrayal of how people can people who are not as enamoured of the world of books can find that kind of passion or that kind of obsession so completely not just alien, but they can react to it in a very hostile way. Um, there's something there's something very real in the way Isabel is is actively prevented from accessing these other worlds. You know, there's something suspect about the fact that she wants to sit and read all the time. And she encounters this again and again as a child, you know, with her mother. Even when they're on holidays, she's not allowed to keep the light on in bed and read at night. Um, you know, when she is beyond her mother in that way and she's sort of in this, she has this lovely moment of freedom where she's unpacking her books in the room of her own, in her single room in her boarding house. Um, but even then she can't read at night because she's not allowed to, you know, run up big electricity bills. So she's constantly kind of constrained and and not just in a way of, you know, I don't know, people misunderstanding her. They are willfully hostile to who she wants to be and what she wants to do. It's such a real and yeah, I think that's that's um, that's a really interesting point to think about. It's such a real thing too. I was I was reading this book. Uh, I think it was last weekend. Where it, whenever it was, I was sitting in a pub, um, just reading the book by myself. And it was a Friday or a Saturday, and there was football on. And I got to the part where Isabel's in the boarding house trying to read, and she's getting mm. things thrown at her. And I really <laughs> felt I could feel that isolation because you sit alone in a pub with a book. And even if nothing's thrown at you, the the, the looks are thrown. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's my idea of heaven, but um, it's you know it's still a pretty suspect thing to do. And whether you want to sort of look at it in the most literal level of just you know people find it weird that you might want to sit and read a book, um, or whether you want to think about the way it operates as a metaphor for you know people's suspicion about a life of the mind or their suspicion about. Um, you know, taking a refuge in imagination or a kind of anti-intellectualism or whatever you want to call it. There's a lot of different layers that you can drill down in there. And, um, yeah, I think, I think that was, that was one of the most powerful things that poor Isabel, no matter, she, she kept extricating herself from these, uh, from these sort of impositions, but just the time that it takes her to, find the freedom to read and the freedom to engage with words the way she would like to. I think, again, in Charlotte's introduction to High for Isabel, she says that in the subsequent book, Isabel on her way to the corner shop, uh, again, um, you know, Isabel's hammered for reading somewhere else. Um, and I think in light of the kind of career trajectory that David was talking about Amy Whitting having, just this this blocking and this stifling is is such a powerful and palpable thing in this character that she's made. 
Yeah, and it's a really ongoing theme in Whitting's work, which could be tedious in the hands of a lesser writer, but it, it just seems it's always so natural and intrinsic to what she does that there are these um, really quite subtle uh, critiques of small-minded uh, anti-intellectualism. There's this great short story that uh, about a, a young woman who uh, has to take a room uh, in a small boarding house and, and you know is prepared to pay an exorbitant uh, rental fee because she's going to have a room of her own uh, to plonk down the typewriter and and start her work as a writer and then swiftly discovers that the landlady can't can't abide this first the desk is full of stuff and then the typewriter is making a hideous noise and what is this racket and people who write people who read are treated with uh, hostility with suspicion uh, and of course sometimes with sort of you know mild physical violence so <laughs> it's it's always entertaining and it's a, it's always a it, that that thread is always running through her work there's there's always poetry as well poetry is a is the ultimate kind of refuge for um for for readers and and writers the characters in in witting stories and they're always bumping it up against uh, small-minded people and baffled by them as well. They don't really because they're not trying to upset anyone. I really like in I for Isabel how Isabel is constantly trying to find a way to to do her reading and and not offend anyone. I found um, we've talked a lot about this this thread of anti-intellectualism that Amy Whitting would would like to satire and and definitely engages with. I also found something that might have been obscured at the beginning, but how, how highly gendered the novel is. At the beginning, we, we very much have Isabel, her sister, her mother, all, the, all of these female characters. So, we have this, this sort of playing field where the male characters seem on the periphery, but then the adult Isabel, she discovers this group of poets in a Glebe cafe. And apart from the fact I absolutely loved that because I'm, I am five minutes, ten minutes maximum <laughs> walk right now from where this happened. I, I'm gonna, I might have to go for a walk just to live in Isabel's world after our conversation. But um, she finds this new world opening up to her, but despite the modest encouragement that she receives from Trevor, one of the group, it's the men of the group who write and recite, and it's hard to imagine them having faced the struggles that Isabel has overcome just to carve her place in the world. And I was really interested in that, that sort of gendered reading of the novel and Isabel's struggle against her mother, definitely, but also the fact that she is a woman in a world that isn't really listening to female voices at the time. Yeah, I think uh, th- there's a comment that that uh, Whitting herself made at, at one point that she was always trying to escape the uh, the Macaulay crowd and that, you know, they were so sort of... Do- uh, dominating and and it's it's tempting to kind of see that in in this scene uh even though you know we shouldn't mistake isabel for witting that that she she isn't she doesn't have the same privilege as those student poets and so she's uh, really desiring to be part of their world and and they are relatively uh friendly to her she's not rebuffed uh, because she's not studying at university or whatever but there is that aspect of uh, of, of her looking in through a window always uh, as a young woman. And that comes through in a, in a lot of Whitting's novels and stories that they often take um, very typical, particularly the rural stories, of which, of course, this is not one. They take these settings where uh, that are quite conventional to Australian literature and then sort of invert them and tell them from the female perspective. And, uh, yeah. 
I was just going to say too, there are there are kind of layers of hierarchy amongst amongst the people in that group of poets that she that she sort of walks up to and gets herself into in Glebe. And I I found her act of um, you know she she hears these people talking in a cafe about poetry. Someone is reciting their poetry, and you know someone else is kind of giving an immediate critique of it. And she there's this magnetism that pulls herself. Uh, that pulls her across the cafe and she she thinks that she recognises one of the girls and she sits there, drags the girl's name out of her head, you know, they've been at school together. And th- this extraordinary act of bravery where she walks over and, you know, introduces herself and, and um, gets herself in there. And But as she is entering the group and as you sort of meet the group through her, those layers of hierarchy still exist within the group. So there's there are the poets who are, you know, sort of acknowledged by everyone in the group to be the brilliant ones. And then there are the the other male members of the group who are already kind of deferring to those mm. brilliant people and saying, Oh, well, you know, I'm I I'm not really interested in being a writer. You know, they've already those people have claimed their space. Then there's the next spot down. Then there's another there are the other women in the group and there's a great scene. I can't remember if it's the first or second conversation she has with these people. Isabel tells a story uh, from her boarding house, from two of the older women at her boarding house, and it's this wonderful, wonderful anecdote. And the group start discussing it and someone says, you know, do you think Isabel made it up? And it's another woman who says, I hope she didn't. It's that just that sort of another woman doesn't want this this unknown entity to have had this brilliant imaginative flash that would have created this thing. So even in the, you know, beyond the sort of gendered um, split in a way, there are all these other layers and, and Isabel is having to, having to navigate herself as a very um, sort of single and isolated creature amongst, I had the sense of these sort of tectonic plates of different bits of family or social world or class or whatever it was and she is this just this one little thing trying to find how she might fit in somewhere how she might belong where she might be able to be herself in that way I I thought interestingly the one time that she is actually called on to use use her words to use her voice is actually strangely enough when you've got at your hands all of these brilliant wordsmiths the one that you think would defer to them but when when nick dies and someone has to go and tell diana she's called on for this strangely uh sort of macabre uh duty and it's really just because nobody else wants to do it her voice is almost Mm. the voice of last resort here yes i think so it's one of the most um it was just one of the most extraordinary pieces of writing in the book. So among these uh, sort of university students, there's a young man, Nick, who has been um, haunted or stalked by a, a former girlfriend and uh, a, he's killed and, and as you say, Isabel's the person who's sort of tasked with going and telling the ex-girlfriend that this has happened. And you do get the sense that it is partly, well, I got the sense that it was partly because she wasn't one of the group that she was required to do it, however it was being framed. But it allows Amy Whitting to write this amazing, amazingly human scene of grief and shock and 
and I don't know, sort of a, a really kind of strangely rageful release, um, which is just one of the most compelling pieces of life I have ever seen set down on the page. It is it is an extreme event, you know, like the extreme events that we need to put into narratives and those sorts of things. But yeah, it was was one of the scenes that just absolutely rang with with power in terms of what Whitting could get Isabel and the other character Diana to do and and how she could allow Isabel to observe how Diana was behaving in the moment before she heard this news and then in her reaction to it was just absolutely masterful. Yeah, I, th- I, I completely agree and I think it is a perfect example of how Whitting's characters do things that are r- very real and human but then they don't always react in the way that people in books do. I mean, there's a, there's a real... Uh, drive against cliche, I think, in Whitting's writing. Mm. And so the scenes are arresting because there's a sort of... uh, I find myself doing a double take where you think, oh, that character hasn't done what I thought they were going to do. And instead they've done something that's far more, um, usually much more alarming, um, stranger, funnier sometimes as well. It's very savage. And it just seems so much more real than... uh, um, than than you often encounter in fiction, and uh, I think there's there's a reference to that in um, Melanie Newson has written an introduction to the uh, to one of the Whitting classics, and she talks about Whitting's characters not really seeming like characters, but just like people, and mm. it, it it is really strange the, that she has this capacity to to bring out people's interior lives in in ways that, and I slipped into saying people rather than characters, <laughs> uh, you know, bring them out in ways that just seem so true and uh, and she does it with such economy. You know, she flashes forward um, so quickly in uh, in narrative and, and in, even in particular scenes so that things just come in, uh, in a rush and even her technique of splicing internal thoughts between dialogue so if you've got uh, Isabel talking to Diana the girl who's you know informed of this uh, of this death uh, you've got the line of dialogue and then you've got what's going on in Isabel's head as she's reading the, the situation and it's very powerful that's like I wondered too if that's one of the reasons that the book was so successful when it was finally published it's just that um, it's the clarity of it and the kind of uh, the pure sort of forensic investigation of of very, very small pieces of life. And if that was what spoke to so many readers, you know, when it was finally published. I think something of it must be Isabel's psychology, though. I mean, I just it was so intense and we've talked about Isabel's inner life. Uh, I, I see her, saw her very much from childhood through adulthood. She's almost like one of... Oliver Sacks' anthropologist on Mars. She's viewing everyday behaviour as somehow suspect or a riddle to be puzzled out. And it seems very alienating. For her, it's it's very alienating. She doesn't even feel she can trust people that she felt she was close to. And as much as she seems solitary, I think for the reader, it then becomes this matter of how often every day, every moment, every social occasion, you felt that way yourself and that makes mm. it so close and so human? Mm. Well, she discovers slowly, um, incrementally, that 
so many things that she's been told by her both her parents but particularly her mother have distorted her view of the world and so um, when she revisits uh, the scene of her childhood and encounters a neighbor she she finds that her understanding of of her relationship with that neighbor was just completely wrong and it was mm-hmm. because her mother had um, quite viciously distorted uh, other people's she was all, forever telling Isabel you can't do that because so and so will interpret it this way or we don't do this and and so she's sort of bound by these rules and she finds out that of course most of them are not how other people operate or have seen the situations at all and so she's completely undercut by these and uh, the, you know it just reinforces what an act an outsider she, she yeah. feels herself and, to be and that scene that final section of the book the way it's, it's so masterfully realised you we're drip-fed what this event is and until it sort of all comes rushing out of Isabel when she realises that it, she was actually wrong. But we never, I, we don't quite know. It brought to mind um, a few years ago, Amy McBride's A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing with these, these thoughts that are fragments until Isabel can actually bring the coherent thought together. And, and by that point, she's realised how completely wrong she's been. And I think too, I think uh, does Charlotte would talk about it in her introduction of that that final section of the book. There's this, there's the the style of writing changes, the sort of the you know the whole um, pace of it and the voice of it. It's a, it's quite a distinct piece, and there is this um, you know again I just kind of admire Isabel's bravery because she sets herself this task that she is going to go back to her childhood home she's going to kind of square off with the demons and then has this um, interaction with the neighbor and discovers that this thing that she has just been hounded for when she's little and that she has you know really carried with her as such a burden is not at all (laughs) the event that she remembers Um, and through this she steps towards the realisation of who she wants to be, what she wants to do. And there was such an absolute moment of epiphany as she she sort of switches the prism of, you know, wanting to just be the person who is pleased, just left alone to read, to understanding that what she wants to do is right. And I found that, I mean, it was it was almost... You know, the, the meeting with the neighbour is heartbreaking enough because you can see this sort of quite nice woman explaining what had happened with the child Isabel from her point of view and making a bit of a judgment on Isabel's mother, um, but clearly never having intervened when Isabel was little or never having kind of followed it up or tried to sort it out. Um, but yeah, she, she sort of steps through all of these things and she finally sees who she wants to be and what she wants to do. And it is just one of the most amazing releases somehow. And she, she takes herself off to the corner store. It's a Sunday, but she has to buy a book. She has to sort of get onto this act of writing immediately now that she's, she's recognized it as her purpose. And there is this beautiful line where she, where uh, Amy Whitting describes Isabel um, opening up the blank exercise book for the first time. And it's just a little bracket or something where it says something like, you know, it will never be like this again. And you know that moment, just that, that thrill of, of starting out, of having had the realization, having had the epiphany, and finally having the space and the time to do this thing it's just I found it just 
incredible. It was just a beautiful and perfect piece of writing. It was definitely not uh, a section to read in a busy cafe, trying desperately <laughs> to not have tears no. streaking down. My tears. I actually just opened up the book while you were speaking, Ashley, and I'm like, I can't, I'm going to start crying. This, it's so yeah. beautiful. She's, mm. She goes, I, I am a writer. I am a writer. And just those two repeated uh, three words. It was just, it's so beautiful. Um, yeah. It <laughs> is. And I think too, what it made me realize is, you know, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot in my own work recently is just just the happy coincidence of when you happen to be born. You know, I realized when we got to the end of, when I got to the end of Eyes for Isabel and I, you know, I'm with you, I was crying. Um, but it was that thing of, you know, she had, she had been a, a young girl and a young woman in a world where there was nothing to suggest to her that, you know, there was no, there had been no discussion that she might go to university even though she was you know several teachers had talked about how brilliant she was and there's that excoriating scene where she realizes she's got everything right in a maths test and you know that's just the worst kind of social faux pas you can make um but there is it's just that thing of thinking to be in that time where you just your education or your or your social group or just where you were, you had no way of navigating your own self, let alone um, let alone anything else. That it's there was nothing that could suggest to her there is this thing. If you do this thing, this thing will help you make sense of this amazing world that you see and how you see it. I just found that incredibly affecting. That there would have been so many Isabels, with or without that particular awful mother but who just weren't put in the way of um, the possibility of the thing that would make them whole the thing that would give them the prism through which they wanted to to think about the world and to understand the world and themselves that's right it's really like uh, Elizabeth Harrow is the watchtower at least superficially mm. there's this, this, the setup of two sisters who are just sort of abandoned to the world because their um, their parents are, are no 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 longer on the scene, they've died or gone away or whatever. And and these young women are essentially forced to fend for themselves. And they're, they're sort of prey to market forces. You know, uh, Isabel has to take a crummy job and uh, she's operating above her level and an, an aunt intervenes and says, you know, you're, you're doing better work than this, you shouldn't be paid the, the lowest wage. Uh, but you're cast out into the world, there's not the opportunity, not only to not to go to university, but not to... Uh, to have sort of free time and free space, you know, that you don't mm. get a room of your own, you can't have the light on, you can't read, you know, everything is everything is is pressing down on you as as a young woman. Uh, you don't have, you just can't can't do it. You know, it's not the way. Guys, I might just draw this together now. Is that okay? Did yeah. anyone? Do we want to yeah. add anything before I draw it together? Uh, I don't know if there's a neat way to say it, but I just always find that she's such a funny writer as well. <laughs> anyway, I think we can leave that. But um, she, I think that's often underrated in her in appraising her. But anyway, absolutely, yeah. Just, and and so many things that we've we've missed as we we find this every month, don't we, David? So many things that we could yeah. have gone on to. All right, here we go. You are tuned in to the Australian Classics Book Club, and we are discussing "I for Isabel" from Amy Whitting. I'm going to say thank you to my guest, my regular book club colleague, David Winter. 
Thank you so much for joining me again, David. Thanks, Andrew. It was great. And we were also joined this month by Ashley Hay. She has written the introduction to Amy Whitting's A Change in the Lighting. If you have read along with us, I for Isabel, you can go out and check out A Change in the Lighting. Ashley is also the author of The Body in the Clouds, The Railwayman's Wife, amongst many others. Thank you so much for joining us, Ashley. Thanks, Andrew. This is the Final Draft Summer Series, and today we were discussing Amy Whitting's Eye for Isabel. Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch however you want to reach out. You can email us, finaldraft at 2SER.com. You can drop in on socials. We're at Final Draft 2SER. Or you know what? Just leave us a liking, thumbs up, star, however your podcast app lets you do it. Write a comment. I'd love to hear from you. It's also a great way to help others discover the show. My name is Andrew Popel. I am going to be back with more incredible, great conversations across the summer, across the year, because I just love to read. I hope you do too. Till next week, happy reading and bye for now.